So I want you to say that phrase with me that's here on the screen, I am sending you. Can you say that with me? I am sending you. The implication behind that statement is actually one of power. We don't really say, I am sending you very often. We might say it like, hey, can I send you to the grocery store to pick up a couple of things, say it to a spouse, say it to a roommate. But when Jesus says it in today's passage, he is speaking to his disciples. He is resurrected. He is fully restored in his body. He is ruling and reigning with God as he always has. But that power is what I want us to key in on today. Uh, How many of you are fans of uh, the TV show The Crown? It's a really wonderful show. They've been making it for years now. It's about Queen Elizabeth and just her legacy as she has recently passed away. I'm sure that the viewership has gone up a little bit on The Crown. But it's about more than just her life and her as a uh, monarch. It's about a family. It's about a group of people who sort of gather around this concept of the crown, of the history and legacy of the British monarchy. One of the things that is sort of highlighted in the series is that everything really is about the queen. The queen reigns, the queen rules. She is sort of at the center of this family. And you'll notice just behind her is her dashing husband, Prince Philip. Now, in real life, Prince Philip predated his wife in passing by, I think, about a year, but he as well was one of the longest-serving British monarchs in history. Early on in the TV show, there's a dramatic depiction of how Philip, the prince, has to wrestle with the fact that he's not at the center of this picture. He's not at the center of really anything about British royal life. He's important, he's part of the queen's family, but it's about the queen. She alone has the power to say to her subjects, I am sending you. And in fact, that's one of the things that Philip wrestles with. He, he struggles with this idea that he doesn't get to be king. He doesn't get to have the glory. He doesn't get to have sort of praise lavished upon him like the queen does because his life is in service to the crown. And so there's actually an episode where the queen sends Prince Philip off to do a bunch of royal duties, and in those days, it was things like going to a parade and and being there for the opening of a factory or something significant for a town within the United Kingdom. And Philip wrestles with this. He's, He's really, I think, a little bit humbled by this, maybe more than a little bit humbled by it. But he recognizes, and part of his transformation as a character runs through this idea that he is being sent on behalf of the queen. And he has to learn how to honor that and respect that, how to honor his wife, sure, but how to step into these seemingly ceremonial duties with joy. And both in the show and in real life, Prince Philip was actually one of the most beloved members of the royal family because of how much joy he took in being with the people that he served, in going on behalf of the queen. Say it with me, church. I am sending you. I am sending you. That is what our God is calling us to today. Disciples of Jesus do not get to choose this sending as an elective. This is not optional. This is part and parcel of discipleship to Jesus Christ. Now, here's one of our challenges. Some of you know this about our history, in particular as a church. We started in a family's living room, and some of you were there, watching a live stream of the service from our Green Lake partners, and we grew, and we left that setting, and then we went to Peter Kirk Community Center, and I arrived, And it was an amazing transformation that God did. But I just want to say, it's very hard for a church that starts with humble means to step into this idea of existing for the sake of others. 
It's very hard when so much of your ministry and attention has been focused on, okay, we got to make sure that the chairs are set up and that the pipe and drape is built and the audiovisual stuff is up. Many of you remember those days in the community center. They were really wonderful but also really hard. And now that we've stepped into this setting, we have a step to take as a church where we are naming and articulating our sending, not just existing for ourselves, but existing for the sake of others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians, said it this way, the church can only be the church when it exists for the sake of others. I'll say that again. The church can only be the church when it exists for the sake of others. He uses the analogy of royalty in another uh, statement that he makes. The church must, must bend its knee in service to others. It must kneel in a posture of service, not a posture of submission, but a posture of service toward others. And so one of our questions, one of the things we will wrestle with literally together as a church this morning is, who do we exist to serve? Who is God planted in your heart, in my heart? I, I shared this a little bit with you guys last week. I felt very convicted while I was on sabbatical that in my seven years here, we have had sporadic, infrequent interactions with the poor and the marginalized. There are many who have done great work, and I'm not diminishing that, but as a church, we have not been focused upon, mobilized toward addressing consistently the challenges that our community faces. We live in a wealthy part of Seattle. It doesn't mean there isn't poverty right around us. It doesn't mean there isn't poverty within our midst. How do we care for one another? Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you. Are we taking that seriously? Are we taking that as a mandate to minister to and witness to others? And I know, I know, church, that some of us are sitting there right now and we're going, I don't have time for that. I, I just, I don't. There's a dark part of my heart that feels that too. So hear no judgment there. Hear, hear my understanding of that. I get that feeling of, Travis, I can't really stand it if you're going to ask me to do one more thing. My encouragement to you is not to see this as one more thing. My encouragement to you is to see this as implicit of people who are choosing to follow Jesus Christ, of seeking the fullness of the Gospels as, as it is meant to be expressed in your life. Prince Philip was a lot happier in his service to the crown when he realized that being sent was one of the best things he could be called to do. How about us? Do you understand that being sent as a missionary into your context, into your, church, into your schools, into your neighborhood, into your places of work, doing so in ways that are gracious and respectful to others, that this is the calling Jesus gives when he says, say it with me, church, I am sending you. I am sending you. It's not optional. It's not an elective. It's a core part of the gospel. So we're going to talk through this today and the call to a life of service through three different headings. We're going to look at how Jesus is sent, the sending of Jesus. We're going to look at the sending of Jesus' people. And then I'm going to give us some time to reflect. We're going to have the opportunity to literally sit with the implications of today's message, to write, to think, to pray a little bit. And if you're like me, it's going to be a great opportunity for you to really listen to the voice of the Lord. So let's get ready to do this together. Let's talk about sending Jesus. What are we talking about here? Look at the passage with me. If you have in your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 20. Verse 21, Jesus says to his gathered disciples, the people who have followed him and waited and didn't have any idea that the resurrection was really going to happen, and here he is in front of them. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He gives them the message of peace twice. That's not an accident because the text tells us in verse 19 that they were afraid. Fearful people need to hear this from Jesus. Maybe you need to hear this today, church. Peace be with you. Shalom. 
the fullness and wholeness of God. May it dwell with you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. I want to break that final sentence out into its two clauses. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. What does Jesus mean when he says, as the Father has sent me? What's he talking about? There's three different things that I think are important to keep in mind when Jesus says this. The first thing is that God is keeping his promises when he sent Jesus. See, all throughout the Old Testament, when God's people were riding the tumult of their lives, when they were living under slavery, when they were wandering in the wilderness, when they went through civil war and divisions, there was never sort of a peaceful moment for them. They were constantly in a battle. God's people heard this promise over and over again from God. I will be with you. I will send a rescuer. I will take care of you. This is in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 58. There are so many reference points where we can hear in the ancient, ancient scriptures, in the Old Testament, that there is one who is coming, the Prince of Peace. Jesus is being foretold again and again in the Old Testament. And really, when God sends Jesus, he's just keeping his promises. One of my favorite lessons that we used to teach kids in our children's ministry at a former church was, God always keeps his promises. Will you say that with me? God always keeps his promises. Think about that. I struggle to keep my promises. How about you? God always keeps his promises. He is promised Messiah. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, when he comes and is with people, it is a fulfillment of God's promises. The second thing that we need to recognize when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, is this. Jesus has come to be light in the darkness. John wrote about this at the beginning of his gospel. All things came into being through him, Jesus, the living word. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, what church? And the darkness has not overcome it. A way I would summarize this is the God of the Bible is a realist. He lives in the real world. God doesn't live in some ethereal place where he has no idea how people struggle. He has no idea about racism and poverty and sin. No, God exists in the real stuff that you and I are in. He is with us. The psalmist cries out to him, God, rescue me from the muck. Rescue me from the mire. Get me out of this dirty place. Because God understands that. He understands what it means to have dirt on you and to be broken and to be filled with pain. And so he sent his son not to contribute to the darkness, not to ignore it, not to look past it. Remember we talked last week about the woman caught in adultery. Jesus didn't look past her. He looked right at her. God called his son Jesus into being to come and be expressed in the world because he gets it. He gets the darkness that you and I live under. He gets the pain that we have experienced. He understands the isolation that many of us went through during the early days of COVID. He understands the anxiety that you feel when your boss calls you. He understands the fears that you have for your children and your grandchildren. He understands the arguments late at night in your marriage. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but so that through the son, all men have life. And that life was the light of people. God sent Jesus into the world to be light. He sees the darkness you and I live in, and he takes it seriously. And we as the church must take seriously the darkness that is around us every day. The final thing that I want to point out about when Jesus was sent, how God the Father sent him, is that God sent Jesus to lay down his life. This is in John chapter 10, one of Jesus' famous speeches about 
being the great shepherd. Listen to this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own. My own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I receive this command from my Father. Jesus came to keep God's promises. He came to bring light, and he came to give his life. Four different times in that passage, he says, I lay down my life, I lay down my life, I lay down my life. Think back to Prince Philip. He had to lay down his aspirations, his broken desires for fame and fortune, and he had to say, no, I lay down my life in service to this greater thing. This is what Jesus has chosen to do. Out of knowledge of what his sheep struggle with, out of love for them, and out of obedience for his Father's will. He understood it. He lived it out. It is so important for us to recognize that Jesus wasn't just sent because God had a brilliant idea. No, Jesus was sent so purposefully, so precisely into the world that God loved so much that he sent his son to save it. Now, the second part of that clause, I promised we would get to it, is when Jesus says, now I send you. What does he mean? When he had said this, when he said, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, he breathed on them pre-COVID and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive this gift. What does that look like? What does it mean to receive this gift of the Holy Spirit? I think it means three different important things about how we as a church are sent. This is where I want you to get, start getting your imagination going about being sent to serve someone who is really struggling and serving someone that you may not look like and that you don't really like a whole lot, but it's time for you to bend your knee in service in the name of Jesus. Three different things. He sends his people with power, with others, and with creativity. There is nothing that can match the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is impossible for God's people to be sent forth and to do anything good, anything sustainable, without the power of the Holy Spirit. And this should give us confidence, because it's not like you and I and all of our majestic wisdom and all of our brilliance and all of our spreadsheets and all of our project management techniques are going to solve things like poverty and racism and inequality in our schools and the reading gap and our nasty political discourse. Every one of those things, and we could name dozens more, we would all readily admit, that's way too big for me. That's way too big for one person. That's way too big for one church. Oh, yes, it absolutely is, but it is not too big for the Holy Spirit. It must not be. The Holy Spirit has conquered all things in the name of Jesus Christ for the furthering of the kingdom of God, so there cannot be a thing that we look at with our mortal eyes and say, yeah, you know, Holy Spirit, I don't know if you can climb that mountain. That's a tall one. The heroism of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. The courage of William Wilberforce. People who took great mantles upon their shoulders to dismantle things like racism and slavery. They didn't do this thinking that they had the strength. They did it acknowledging that the strength came from the Holy Spirit, from the literal breath of God being breathed upon God's people through Jesus Christ. You see a problem that's too big, you don't put it on yourself. You go, Holy Spirit, how do you want to solve this? Because you care about making all things new. 
And you'll use people like me to chip away at it, to take a little bit of its power away, certainly. Yes, let's do what little maybe we can, seemingly, but let us not fail to do what we've been called to do, to seek the restoration of all things. The second thing that Jesus does when he sends his people is he sends them with others. Notice the pronoun in today's uh, phrase, he said to them, them. He didn't just say to one disciple, like, you know, you look like kind of the Michael Jordan. I'm going to bring you up here. Let's give you the two, three. You're going to go out there and shoot the final basket. Like, this is great. No, he said to them, he said to the team, you're up for this. In Luke chapter 10, he sent 72 disciples on a specific mission to heal and proclaim the kingdom of God. 72 people is a lot of people. That's a lot of people to go and send forth on any kind of mission. Every nonprofit I know of would give multiple organs, kidneys, to get 72 people fired up about a mission that will change the world. We do this together. Whatever God lays upon your heart, whatever we dream up of in a moment, know that you will not uniquely carry that burden by yourself and no one will pay attention to you. One of the rules I have for ministry, I call the rule of two, And that is, if you have a great idea for something that we should do in our community, if you have a calling that God has put on your heart to minister to a marginalized group of people, the rule of two says, that's great that you have that. Go get someone to do that with you. Bring someone beside you. Bring a brother or sister in Christ next to you and say, hey, I got this thing, and I know it sounds a little bit crazy, but I really want to do something to bless and serve kids at Thoreau Elementary or at Moreland's or at any of the elementary schools in our backyard. And I just, I don't know how to do it, but would you pray with me? Would you partner with me? I think God really wants to do this. The rule of two. Because we're going to discern better together than we will as individuals how God is calling us to address these unique challenges in our day. It is not about doing this by yourself. The final thing that God gives to his people to seek and to be sent is creativity. And I love this. This is in John chapter 1. Jesus is arriving on the scene. His cousin, John the Baptist, sees him, and it says this. John exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. And a group of disciples are around them, and two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, say this with me, church, what are you looking for? Say it again. What are you looking for? If you dig into the Greek on that, you know what he's asking the disciples? He's asking them, what is in your heart? What do you care to address? What are you going to spin up your creativity around to solve and to minister toward? What is God using in you to change in the world? Where is he nudging you? And the disciples continue to follow Jesus, but this question, I think, looms large for the church in 2022. What are you looking for? What have you seen? What have you observed? Poverty? Racism? Hunger? Recklessness with our intimacy, recklessness with our finances. There is something, and I've talked to so many of you about this in different ways. There is something that is sitting on your heart right now where you go, oh, if I could take an hour, if I could take five hours in my week and try to tackle this, oh, that would bring me such joy. That would help build God's kingdom. What a gift. So rather than me dictate to y'all how this is going to play out, we're going to turn this upside down and we're going to have an opportunity to reflect together and discern together where God might be at work right now. 
And these are reflection questions that I'm going to leave up here on the screen. They're also on those sheets of paper hanging on the far wall to my left. So you'll notice, what are you looking for? The question Jesus asked his disciples, that's over here. And underneath that poster is a basket. And in the basket, it's not Easter eggs. In the basket is yellow post-it notes and Sharpie markers. These are our tools for discernment today. So what I'm going to do in a moment is I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have some time to just be silent, reflecting on these questions, which are up here and also over there. And then when I dismiss you in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to get up, physically get up, and walk over to this wall and take a notepad and take a Sharpie marker and write down your responses to these questions. For example, what and who do you see around you? When we first moved to the east side, my family and I were living in bridal trails, so we went to this park in Redmond, and it was astonishing to me. We were the only white family in this park. There were Indian families. There were Hispanic families. There was families of every color of the rainbow around us, and we were the only white family, and I remember sitting there thinking, this is incredible. Our kids get to grow up with this diversity, with the way that the world looks. It's happening right here at this park in Redmond. What is happening around you? Have you had experiences like that? Maybe a cross-cultural experience. Maybe an experience where you interacted with someone from a different background than you. Maybe you saw something in the world where you went, I don't know really what to do with that, but I know God is in this. Because that's what I felt sitting at that park in Redmond. Where is God already at work around us? What are the things that we know God is already doing? What are the ways that God, he's, uh, that God has already stirred up something in you or in your family or in your small group? I know a family in this church that takes so seriously the call to minister to and care for refugees. And thanks to our partnership with World Relief Seattle, we are able to form these good neighbor teams to come around refugees from all over the world, from Afghanistan and from East Africa and from any nation you can think of where refugees are on the run. And these groups of people courageously mobilized to serve these folks who literally have nothing. That is a place where God is already at work. And I just want to name that. I'm not asking everyone to come up with something brand new that we've never heard of. Maybe we just partner with what God is already doing. Where do we long for God to be at work in our communities? I've been talking, you've been thinking. And there's something that is stirring up in your heart. What might you respond to that question with? We're going to have a chance to do this. We're going to have a chance to reflect. And I just want to ask you guys to be honest with what you write down. You don't have to put your name on whatever you write. And one of the things I hope for is that at the end of our time together this morning, we'll be able to collect just a couple of these ideas, convictions, nudges from the Holy Spirit, and we'll just pray over them together. And our leadership team will have the chance to pray over these ideas and discern them. These things will not get shoved in a drawer and forgotten. These will be the cries of our church's heart as we seek to step into the type of ministry that God has for us that is empowered by the Holy Spirit that we will do with others and that we will do with courage. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we now turn our attention to discerning your will, we want to admit that it is just impossible for us to see this with the clarity that you have. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are one and you move as one in each of our lives. And we want to be sensitive to the way that you're speaking to us now. Each of these friends that's here this morning, newcomers, people who've been here a long time, they're here for a reason. They're here to speak into this moment of discernment. And really, that's what it is. We just hold it out to you as an opportunity to discern together the will that you have for us. 
So Jesus, help us. Jesus, as you pour out your Holy Spirit upon your disciples, as you breathe life into them and this calling to be sent people, would you help us to follow in their footsteps? The women and men who came before us, the women and men who helped build your church, who helped reach people for Christ, who helped minister to the poor and the broken, would you help us to join in that great tradition and yet to do it in a way that is unique to our context and to our day so that you'll receive the glory. Give us creativity and wisdom and compassion as we discern how you are calling us to go, to be missionaries, to be a sent people in this community. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to reflect and just sit where you are. If you want to get up and go ahead and go get uh, a notepad and a marker just so you can write stuff down, you're more than welcome to do that. We'll have just a couple of minutes of silent reflection, and then we'll have the opportunity to head over there. I'll cue you guys when it's time to do that. And then uh, at the end of our time together, uh, be listening for Megan to lead us in song, and then we'll close in prayer. Let's discern together.